This is What Book Cooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. Excited for this episode because Ben Philippe is back on the podcast. Uh, he was did the podcast way back when The Field Guide to the North American Teenager was about to come out. It obviously went on to win the Morse Award. And Ben and I, since that first episode, we've texted back and forth a little bit. When I went up to New York, we met up. Uh, so we've got to know each other somewhat. Uh, and so this c- episode is much more of a conversation. It's a lot longer, obviously. We actually talked for probably another hour after uh, I stopped recording. Uh, but we're talking about this and we're putting the conversation out because he has a new book, Charming as a Verb, coming out on September the 8th. So we talk about that. We talk about what it was like to win the Morris Award and get into a whole bunch of other conversations and tangents. Uh, probably a much more free-flowing than what you're used to, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I certainly did, so listen in. So how have things been going You know, with the pandemic? How have you been coping through all of this? Everybody has like their own way of coping. Somebody was telling me, like, oh, it must be really easy to write during this time. I'm like, no, 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 no. no. My brain is so not in it. I will... I will read. I've been reading a lot mm-hmm. and I've been baking for some reason, <laughs> which might be a sign of depression. I don't know. Um, and I bought a rowing machine. So I think mm-hmm. everybody's like coping in brand new ways that they did not see coming. Now, what kind of rowing machine did you get? Did you get the one with like the video screen and everything on it? I got the water rower, um, which comes with the possibility of getting the video screen. But it's, I, I didn't buy it yet because it's like $400 sure. for no reason. Um, but it's like the pretty one who's ma- that's made out of wood and there's uh. water tank and it spins and it's supposed to be like really zen like sure. my friend got it and swears by it. So I'm going to install it tonight or tomorrow and start my rowing journey, which I did not see coming, but um probably not going to step into a gym anytime soon. Right. And now I have a pandemic. I can sort of blame for that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with this thing. I've been eyeing one of those up because I like the idea of owning a rowing machine. Uh, did you ever watch uh, uh, House of Cards? Uh, yes, like the first two seasons. I think I watched. Oh yeah, I think it's in the first two seasons. At some point, he gets a rowing machine. Yeah, I do in remember his basement, an old school wooden yeah. one. It's kind of like that, except there's a water tank. I do remember that. Yeah, I have a treadmill. I have been using it. Surprisingly, I I do like two miles a day. Sometimes oh. slow, but I'm on it. I'm running first thing in the morning. I can't say I'm healthier because I just kind of use it as an excuse to eat like an idiot. But mm-hmm. I'm doing something. Doing something. That's the whole point of exercising. It's an excuse to eat. Like I made a full uh, hummingbird cake and ate that mm. thing in three days. Like I love it was really sad. It was a sad, bleak day for me. Cause like the last uh, three slices, I'm like, well, there's no one coming over, and I'm not going anywhere that I can bring it. So I, I, I literally poured like a dishwashing detergent over the last third to stop myself. From- <laughs> My dog was looking at me like not quite understanding, but also like judging. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So I have no. There's no template for return guests, so yeah, I was gonna ask because the I, first time, like, uh, we I think we went into like your like childhood and yeah. life. 
and because I've had about a dozen people so far come back, and and there's never so we so I typically just hit record, and I just find the beginning later, basically. Okay. So we have not had a full deep discussion since the Morris Award. We've we've texted back and forth about it. But so I want to kind of break down what happened. So for the audience who doesn't already know, The Field Guide to the North American Teenager came out, uh, what was it, January of, was it 18 or 19? Dates don't mean anything anymore, but I'm just trying to make Anything. Uh, 18 feels right. Although no, it could be 19 too. It's been like, a, it's been 18 months. So whatever... So it would, that, be, it would be 19 then, I guess. I am yes, very good at that. It would have that. to be. It would have to be. So comes out in January of 19. Uh, and then what? I guess it was the fall of 19. So like nine months later almost that yeah. the book gets nominated. Now, first, do you know anything that like, I don't even know how it works. Does the publisher like nominate your book, like put it out there for consideration, I guess is the term. Like, and do you know that it's being put out there for consideration or does the committee kind of decide who's being considered? Do you know how any of that works? Uh, I do. And I will preface by saying that uh, it was an amazing honor. I am so happy to have gotten the <laughs> William C. Morris Award. Uh, it's, I'm not saying what I'm going to say next to like diminish that in any way, but apparently the publisher nominates books that they feel are strong contenders for a bunch of awards, and they never or rarely tell the authors because you know if you say, "Hey, I'm nominating you for a Pulitzer," that's sure. an example, and then like you're not selected or like the Pulitzer committee like doesn't approve of the nomination then that's a bummer to tell the author so they just do it on the down low and if the nominations come through then they tell you so um my editor is alessandra balser uh of balser and bray they're amazing and she did that she nominated it and you know it worked out that they picked uh, the field guide along with four other books and she Normally, she emails me. She's very nice in emails, but she was trying to call me. And I'm <laughs> always afraid to talk on the phone, not just with Alessandra, literally with anyone. I hate talking on the phone. Like, this is more natural to me than talking on the phone for some reason. And she was trying to call me, trying to call me, and then finally she got through. I was like, hey, what's up? And she told me, Ben, you've been nominated for the William C. Morris Award. And I was like, oh, oh, cool. <laughs> Thank you. And she was sort of like disappointed in me because not disappointed in me, but she was like, no, 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 this is a huge deal. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I did not know how to uh, caliber my enthusiasm because I I had heard about it, but I I wasn't like involved in Yalsa and sort of the entire ecosystem. Um, But no, she had to sort of like pump me up and say like, no, it's a big deal because of this, this book one and this book one and like they're really selective. So it took a a little bit of like jazz fingering for me to catch up (laughs) with what it actually meant. (laughs) And so once you're nominated, is it do you do you even allow yourself to get excited about the prospect of winning? No, 
because someone, wow, now I'm doing the tell-all. Not Alessandra. Someone else told me that uh, comedic books mm. don't usually win. Um, and the field guide is kind of a drama coming of age, but it's a big part of his comedy. I wrote it that way. So I was like, oh, okay, so it's not going to win. So I was fully committed to not winning. Like, and it not, it's not in a begrudged sense. It was one of those things where like, no, just to be no nominated, to be one of those five finalists, one, five, yeah, five, um, is plenty. So I was moving along with that. And, you know, you go there, you meet all the other authors, you have fun. They had really good food. So I was <laughs> happy with all of that. And then the selection committee told me, and then it, it was an actual shock. Like, Alessandra was there with me, and she was completely shocked. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I did not expect it at all. I really thought it was just like, you're nominated. You're not going to be the winner. And did, so do they... Do they tell you before they announce it on stage? They tell you the night before. Um, so the next morning, is it starts really early. It starts at like 8, which I guess because they're all educators and, sure. you know, like that's, that's not early. Exactly, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it start, they tell you the night before. There's a dinner with all the finalists. So we all meet and mingle and talk and eat those to kill for, like little duck meat meatballs that I'm still thinking about <laughs> and then you go home to your hotel and then that's typically when they say hey you get a call that says hey it was a pleasure meeting you tonight by the way you're the winner um you should prepare a speech for tomorrow and by then it's 11 p.m um the way it worked out in my case is that I'm a socially awkward lingerer at parties mm -hmm. and I know everybody loves to say that they're awkward at parties but for me it's actually like really awkward i won't talk for 40 minutes then i'll get like a burst of energy and sure. talk to everyone for without like breathing for 20 minutes and then i'll shut down again um but me and alessandra were sort of like the last of the authors still hanging around uh because you know the committee is amazing they all have cute kids and cute dogs so we're literally trading photos of dogs and kids <laughs> and i was the last one there and then they were like well, he's here. So instead of just like waiting for him to get to his hotel room, um, we can just tell him now. So they told me Alessandro was tearing up. I was really overwhelmed and there was hugging and profuse thanks. So they told me in person and then I had to rush home, wake up my mom to tell her. And then I had to do the whole Jazz Fingers thing. So it's like, no, it's a William C. Morris award. It's big deal. How dare you not know? Um, and then prepare a barely coherent speech. That's great. So, what before you won this award what was your attitude towards the book in as far as its success essentially hmm really happy uh trying to think i'm trying to think if there's like an arc to how i felt it came out i went on tour with epic reads around that time um that was great but I was I was the de debut author, which means that like if you're on a panel with five, uh, three other authors who all have book series, mm -hmm. like when people come up, <laughs> you're the and to sort of get all their books signed, you're sort of like the person that they nod to. It's like, hey, thank you, you were fun up there. I'm not gonna buy it, but you were fun up there. It's like, and it was just sort of like all social for me. Uh, 
I thought it was doing well. Uh, people enjoyed it. And that thing, that almost cliche thing that kids reach out to you, mm-hmm. it's actually true, which is <laughs> wild. Like, I, I have a website, but my website is mostly because someone told me you needed to have a website, so my friend designed it for me. But uh, through there, like, I got people messaging me, thanking me for writing Norris Kaplan, uh, giving me their really uncensored thoughts on like the love triangle and how it all worked out, asking if it's going to be a TV show and all that stuff. So it was really cool to know that people were reading it. Um, I kind of tuned out of the overall conversation, um, not because, hmm, talking to you always feels like therapy. I don't know why. I just think that, at, okay, when the book first comes out, when you're having your first book out in the world, in my case, I was on Goodreads every single day. Mm. Um, mostly because when you have like five to 15 reviews up there, mm-hmm. like one person loving the book and one person hating the book brings you from like a 4.8 to a 2. So I was really, really keeping track. But when it hits like 30, 40 uh, reviews or ratings, then it just sort of all diffuses, right? Mm-hmm. Someone gives it a five, it goes up by 0.002. Someone gives it a one, it goes down by 0.02. So I was able to tune out of it. And I think that's what you need to do to sure. be able to sort of like, you know, be on Twitter and say, and see a random tweet from someone who's like, oh, that book was so obnoxious. I could not finish it. Thank hmm. you for reading. I don't really care. Or see a tweet from someone. I love this book. Oh my God, write more. Thank you for reading. But you can't really internalize it too much. So I think I was good at not diving in too much. I am also not, not not going to name names, but I know authors who are like deep into it. Like mm-hmm. I need to sell this much to get into this list. I need to sell that much to get onto that list. And if I get into the New York Times bestseller, and I get it, like this is their full-time job. This is both their dreams and their careers. So they're really focused. I was able not to be because I still had my day job and I wasn't mm-hmm. like counting to buy a mansion. Um, <laughs> So the experience was like really not low key, but emotionally manageable for me. Mm. Mm. So now you have the title of award-winning author in front of articles that are going to be written about you. It's in front of the new book. Can you wear that comfortably? Um, do I wear the title of award-winning comfortably? Yeah, <laughs> it's fun. You want an award? <laughs> I is it narcissistic to say that like yeah it's really fun no. um no. yeah I, I I wear it comfortably hey you know what Brock I wear it comfortably well, good good because I don't think I would I think I would be un- really but I'm glad that you do because that's pro- that's what the answer should be I feel wait okay now I'm curious why would you be comfortable with it why would I be uncomfortable with it. Yes. Because, and this is just projecting onto myself, it would be like that book was award-winning, but that doesn't mean that I'm award-winning author. Like everything else I can write from this on this point on could be hot garbage, but just be like, it's like my past doesn't necessarily mean that that's what I'm going to continue to be. Interesting. This is really fascinating. Can we 
can we get deep here? Can, sure. You can totally cut this out if it's nonsense. Um, that's very interesting. And it might actually dovetail into the second book, if you want to talk about that, no pressure. Um, I think because a lot of my life has been doing stuff and always feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome, mm. but also that people are going to assume it was a bit of affirmative action. Mm. Um, and I got a little bit of that with a field guide. I always mm. feel like when I get those mentions, like those credits, I, uh, I grab them for all I can. Sure. Like, no, you did win an award. So you're going to be award-winning author because that's the order of those two words. Um, because I know or I internalize partly the fact that for some people, it's like, oh, they gave it to him because he was black. Mm. Or, oh, she got into that school because they needed black students. And that's not me sort of like being whoop whoop about myself. That's just sort of like a way I've learned to approach the world. So... Yeah, I think it's turned into like it's turned from a bug into a feature into the like <laughs> now when someone praises me sure. and I feel like it's adequate, um, I'll go with it. Like something literal, like award winning. The awards on my shelf right now, so I'm like, okay, yeah, it's award winning. <laughs> it's not like you know, voice of his generation, Ben Philippe. I'll be like, okay, it's <laughs> calm down. It's all calm down. But yeah, for this one, I'll I'll wear it. Sorry, that might have been too intense. That might no. have been something. For the Zoom therapist. No, and I think, like I like I said, I think that is the right answer. Well, and actually, because I think there are people that need to be proud of and tout their accomplishments, and then there are people that need to be more uh, self-aware of themselves. That just because they blew out a candle doesn't make them a firefighter. I mean. Mm. You know, that and, you know, there's the people that need to listen to the advice of follow their dreams are not the ones that usually listen. The people that are in elevated statuses already are usually the ones that, you know, are following their dreams, you know, with no sense of of other people around them. And and I don't even know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. Uh, and I see it in my. No, Sorry. I, I don't know how good of an interview this is because we're, <laughs> whenever I talk with you, I always end up talking about like everything all at sure. once. No, this is good. Um, I see it in my students too. Like I teach at the college level. Um, I teach screenwriting. So I, I see students who are like, listen, Nolan was pretty good, but I'm going to be like the thing. Like they come in with like complete self-confidence and they're just ready for the world. And they really do believe they're the voice of their generation. Sure. Um, and from the outside as someone who's never had that, I weirdly admire it mm. because those people, I mean, it's terrible to teach them in workshops because they can't take a single note. Like students will be giving them really valuable notes. Their classmates will be, I will be, and they'll just be like sitting there nodding, but really rolling their eyes. And you can tell, but you also know that those people, unless it all sort of tips over one day, they're going to keep going. Sure. They're just like, the only praise they need is to look at themselves in the mirror in the morning. And I so admire that because I also see the other side of it in my students, especially mm. uh, in female students and students of color. Like, I have so many students who will submit an assignment on time 
and they also apologize at the same time, hmm. which for me is like a little baffling. They're, they're like, sure. here's my first act. I'm so sorry. This is so bad. Like, And I'm just looking around like, why do you feel the need to do that? Right. <laughs> like, You literally did the thing. Whereas I have other students who are like, listen, I know you're the teacher and you say you're not going to do this for people. It's just it's on the syllabus that I can't do it. But um, I'm pretty good, so I think you should pass this along to your agent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I see both sometimes in whiplash effect in the same classroom. So I'm always like tuned into uh, how much uh, self-worth should you have as an artist before it becomes like liability. <laughs> right. And I think what – so when I give my answer that I'm – that I would be – uncomfortable with the award-winning title if it's more that i'm scared that i would be the person that thinks of the voice of their generation like i'm afraid that i would i'm so fearful of being that of being so not self-aware that Mm -hmm. that would scare me i i definitely have a little bit of that for some reason it just no, actually, why did I just lie? I have a lot of that. None of it lives in um, the Morris Award thing. <laughs> I think because it's a really nice award. All the other authors were really nice. The event was amazing. So I only have positive feelings about it. But um, I do have the fear that like um, my second book is not going to be as well received because I was like able to both take some chances with mm-hmm. it. And there are things I would definitely change um and now i just finished wrapping like a nonfiction manuscript of essays that i am terrified of the world seeing mm. it's that thing i like uh postponed today's chat for and i'm just like what am i doing writing this why this is such a bad idea it's gonna be a disaster i'm gonna get canceled all over <laughs> um by both Twitter and my own family um but yeah <laughs> so i definitely have those pockets of anxieties mm. So, well, let's let's transition and talk about the new book. Uh, so, Charming as a Verb comes out on September 8th. Uh, tell me, give me the synopsis of the book. We'll start out that way. I've had to do this like once before and it meandered and I wasn't able to find a thesis for it. So, this is my second attempt. Um, should be better than the first one. Uh, Charming as a Verb is the story of Henry Haltiwanger who's the son of Haitian immigrants who lives in New York City. And he goes to a really fancy sort of like new agey private school that he got into because of a lottery, essentially. So his classmates are all the children of the wealthy class of the Upper West Side. And he's one of the, you know, however many percent are in there free. I think that's loosely based on my own experience, like... Mm -hmm. I got to go to Colombia for free because my family was so broke. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being broke, surrounded by rich people can really mess with you a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and Henry, it's a love story. So it's the story of Henry sort of meeting with Corrine, uh, who is a classmate of his. And she is the intense ass <laughs> black girl who is always ready to have to shoot her hand up in class with the right answer and point out when the teacher just committed a microaggression so she's that intense person um and henry has like a really really thick outer shell 
Um, he doesn't talk about his own private personal life to his classmates. He parties with them. He's charming at school. Um, he's also, and it's mentioned a few times in the books because I just wanted to like hammer it home, really, really good looking. Because my biggest pet peeve in YA stuff is when someone is like cartoonishly attractive and no one mentions it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just like, oh my God, he's so dreamy. Like, no, 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 no. That is a model. That is a model that just happens to be wearing a hoodie and carrying some books. And we're going to pretend like that's like just a regular human being. Um, so he's a good looking, tall, black kid. And he is very aware of it. So part of his life is that he makes a hustle of it. Like he's a charming dog walker and flirts with elderly dog owners um, for a little bit more money. And he's just learned to sort of smile and charm his way through the world. The inciting incident is that his um, less than honest dog walking uh, business is uncovered by Corrine. And Corrine is graduating from high school. They're both seniors. And she realizes that even though she has the grades, she's probably going to go to a great college. No one likes her. She's missed out on that entire call, uh, high school social life part. Mm-hmm. So she blackmails Henry into being her social guru taking her to parties and socializing her so she can end high school on a high social note. It's basically she's all that, but (laughs) with a slight Mm. twist to it. And there's a whole backdrop of, you know, college applications and the expectations to be an exceptional immigrant that are placed on Henry. Um, He's not just a sociopath, but uh, there's a reason why he's doing everything he's doing. So that's more or less the story of charming as a verb. Be honest. On a scale from 1 to 10, how did I do? What was the idea when you first got started on it? How did you decide that this was the book you wanted to write? What were you? What was that first thing that got you saying, hmm, this could be a story that I could flesh out? What did you kind of, what was that nugget that you started with? Hmm. Two things. Um, well, you know, there was the whole college admission scandal like now 15 hmm. years ago. Um, where parents and celebrities were sort of like, you know, falsifying their children's uh, college applications and achievements to get them into fancy colleges, black, not blackmailing, paying off people and all that stuff. Um, you remember that, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was always so, so weird to me. Um, and it became kind of like the overall narrative about uh, prestige colleges out there. And in my experience, both personal and observing people around me, like it's the children that want it the most. Um, getting into a good college, taking the SATs, sending in those applications, refreshing my browser within an inch of its life. I did all those things because I put all my head, my eggs in that basket, almost to like an unhealthy level, truly. Um, so I, especially when you're an immigrant, that's like the golden ticket. You get into an amazing college and your life is set and your parents' life lives are set and it's all worth it. So whether your mom was a nurse that works 80 hours a week and your dad was a janitor, their kid got into an Ivy League college. Boom. It's a celebration for everyone. So I wanted to write a story where the person that is like going so hard to get into this college is the kid and not the parents. Maybe there's a little parent-like pressure uh, involved, but it's really internalized into 
that 16, 17 year old walking the world who knows that like one letter, uh, one physical letter in the mail is going to change their entire life. Um, so that was part of the inspiration. The other part would be that in the field guide to the North American teenager, uh, is this a spoiler? A little bit, but that's okay. Um, it has a love triangle in it, um, mm-hmm. but it's not a black romance. It's Norris with Artie, who is Indian American, and with Madison, who is white. Um, and I wrote them. They're based on people in my life, so you know, obviously there's a lot of myself in that story. But I always wanted to put a black romance out there, you know? Mm-hmm. Two dark-skinned black people, maybe kissing, tears, <laughs> making out, all that stuff. And that's sort of how I came up with Corinne and Henry's dynamic. Um, and eventual, and hmm, third leg, I guess. Uh, my favorite of the two is Corinne, uh, the young woman who's always you know, super intense and that everybody's afraid of, just because I feel like I have beef with the term black girl magic that talks mm-hmm. about the world as being like super effortless and black women, black girls just navigate through it like, you know, looking like they're out of a music video and everything is effortless. And in my experience, you know, no, black women have it so much harder than all of us combined. Like they get sexism, they get racism, they get the intersectional like weight of it. It's mm-hmm. a mess. So I wanted to write a character who was kind of aware of all of that, that is like really intense, but she knows she has to be, she has a really out a uh, tough shell, but she needs it. It's sort of like har- armor. Um, I just had the idea of a very specific moment that is in the book, um, in the book, where she raises her hand in class to give the answer. And as she does, she catches the eye of, all the kids rolling their eyes and she raises it anyway and she sort of gives the answer anyway and i was like wow that's a really hard thing to do because my hand would be down i would write the answer on the test but i would not raise it and make myself known and sort of validate all the negative opinions of people around me but she does it anyway and i think a lot of black women just have to navigate the world with that focus so i wanted to write that in a teenage character And so we met up when I came up to New York last summer when you were doing like essentially maybe and and maybe you would say it was different, like a big rewrite of this book. (laughs) Yes. So like what was the main problem initially with kind of figuring out this story? Before I get into that, that was last summer? That was last summer. So yeah, we met up last June. uh, Yeah, when I was up in New York for that couple days. Yeah, I saw Tina Fey in person for the very first time. Um, not shorter in real life. You always say like, oh, celebrities are shorter in real life. No, she's exactly the height you expect. Um, feels like it was 20 years ago. We were so close. We were like not socially distancing at all. Uh, the big rewrite, yes, this is the second draft of the book. I The first draft is such a disaster because of that issue with the character of Corinne. Um, because she's wealthy. In this book, also, uh, her mother is very, very wealthy. But in the first draft, that's all that's given to her. She's a spoiled rich girl. So it's almost like the exact expected romance you would expect between a hardworking dog walker, who's really the son of the janitor of the building, and the girl who lives 
in the penthouse, right? And she's spoiled in a way. She doesn't have, like, an inner core. And I think because of that, a lot of, like, the romantic scenes or the scenes of the two of them getting to know each other end up happening at the dog park. And I describe dogs for, like, pages and pages (laughs) because there's not much to the characters. Their dynamic isn't really sort of, like, alive for me, Um, which made it a really, really uh, wobbly and boring and underwhelming book. And I kind of just, I feel like writers can tell when that's what they've written. Mm. Uh, Because I wrote that draft, I submitted it, and I didn't hear back from Alessandra and my editors for like a little while. And then they were like, hey, could we have a talk on the phone? And again, people wanting to talk with you on the phone, (laughs) never a good thing. If it's good news, it's texted with a bunch of exclamation marks and like emojis. and they were sort of tiptoeing around it, tiptoeing around it. And they're like, yeah, we just, ultimately they came out. They were like, yeah, I just think this needs to be like re- reshaped in some way. Like, let's really figure out who Corrine is, who Henry is. And I knew they were completely right because I did not care. I internalize everything. Any bit of criticism about my pants or shirt, I'll never forget <laughs> it. Um, and I remember I had a chat with them. I sat for one minute, then I put the full draft all like 80,000 words um, into my garbage bin and I emptied it on my laptop. Now, I had emailed it to them so I had a backup copy <laughs> needed to, but I never used it again because um, I knew it wasn't a good book or a book I would be proud putting my name on. So that was the second draft that had to start all the way back to the beginning. Is it hard do you are you able to fall in love with your second book as much as you do with the first, given that there's no there's so much pressure on the second versus that isolated time when you were writing that first book? Um, there's not for me, and this is just Ben speaking, I know a lot of like people feel a lot of pressure for about their second books. There's not that much pressure for me. Um on the business side of things, you know, the boring behind-the-scenes side of things, it was sold as a two-book deal, like, when I first mm-hmm. got the book. So I always knew that, like, there was going to be a second one. So I think I had more time to prepare for what that might look like, the second story I would need to come up with. So that was a level of preparation. The first book, I didn't think so at the time, but it was a lot of myself. Um, mm-hmm. And everybody who read it loved telling me that, Jesus Christ. Um, and I actually... I think I mentioned it on the first podcast, and I could feel the pushback from you. <laughs> Did you really? Did yeah, you? I think I alluded to it, and you, I could feel the pushback on it. Okay. I think the pushback is that in my head, uh, I was coming up with a really snarky, moody, judgmental teenager. And everybody who knows me was like, oh, no, this is you. <laughs> At age 28, which I was was kind of hurtful, was kind of like, well, screw you guys, you don't know me. Um, so I think that was the pushback. But also there was something like really, I know Norris Kaplan, I just know that character mm-hmm. so well. So there was something autobiographical and something freeing about writing him. Um, for the second one, they're fully fictional. Like no one in this book, not even like the parents, I was thinking about that the other day, no one in this book is based on someone in my life. Whereas I think there were like four or five, six people in the first one that were just plagiarized, let's face it, from my real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I'm 
I'm very, very engaged in the book, but it's less of a, a direct connection. Uh, I say that now, but I know I'm going to be like all sorts of salty when the book comes out and no one like thinks that the cartoonishly good looking black. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. People are going to be like, oh, okay, this is a new character. Whereas for Norris, who was snarky, moody and short, everybody loved telling me that was Ben. Um, so I know I'm going to feel some type of way about that, but that hasn't happened yet. That's funny. So you you mentioned that, that in this book, dog walking and like park dog parks and things like that are a big thing. You own a dog, so you're very involved in, I'll say like a subculture of dog owners in New York City. <laughs> I can't like, so I have a dog, but we're out here like in the suburbs and things like that. Much different experience than having than me trying to process owning a dog in the city, let alone owning cho- owning children, having children <laughs> in a city. There's ownership there. If there they is. get lost, we're gonna get blamed. <laughs> um. So, like, obviously, having taking your dog on many walks, taking your dog to many parks, is there like noticeable like quirks and things about those situations? that maybe you uh, used for this book? Absolutely. Uh, Less so in this book, but that first horrible draft where I didn't really spend time with the characters, I just like described books and dog parks. Um, (laughs) Really, like two-thirds of it is set at a dog park. Um, Was just that, just those observations and side characters and quirks. Um, Yeah, I have a dog. Her name is Blue. She's very, very cute. White lab mix. Uh, On Instagram, you'll see many, many pictures of her. Um, I think... New York City, you're totally correct. Not only is it weird to to have dogs, or big dogs in my case, 60 pounds in the city, but the city is just exhausting and overcrowded, period, for, for the humans. And yet so many people in the city have dogs. Like, you, I think it's just increased recently, mm-hmm. and not just because of the COVID of it all, but like in the past, like, 10 years, so many more people have dogs. And some of them... The idea for some a lot of people is to get like small dogs that are manageable. But then those small dogs are more skittish and afraid of and overwhelmed by the city. So they're harder to sort of tame and manage because they have no chill. Um, I've got a big dog. Uh, and I just get to notice like the dog park culture of people walking their dogs in the morning, of dog walkers who are all like students or aspiring actors who – who you book through apps who walk like five, six, seven dogs in the middle of the day. Um, there are like people who are overly involved with the dog run. Um, the dog run is the little park inside the mm-hmm. park just for the dogs where there are seats and tables. And some people just take it upon themselves to be like the community <laughs> manager. Of those places. And it's not just a question of like, please pick up your dog's poop. Cause everybody, is very good about that. Used to be in Harlem, you would see poop every few feet, but now people are like more and more picking up. Um, it's just that like, if you go on Instagram, there are photos of the dog park every day. They're like community, like, oh, potluck dinners, <laughs> like right next to a bin of like dog poop. It's very strange. Um, and I think it all boils down to people in the city being incredibly lonely. Sure. Um, they get dogs because... It's your best friend that you just, like, feed and keep prisoner, essentially. So a lot of people have them, and it's 
therapeutic, but the city's also overwhelming. And I think I just enjoy that like bond that dog owners have. Some people, it just emanates off them. You see them at the dog park. They are trying to make conversation with everyone. They are doing the baby voice through their dogs. <laughs> I love my dog. I'm not that weird. Um, I'm not. I'm not like. Oh, what's your name? Well, Sniffles. Think you're pretty great, Ben. Um, that's not me. That's not my journey. No judgment. Um, some judgment. Uh, I think I'm a pretty normal dog walker. A uh, dog person. Dog owner. Like when I go to the park, I think I'm actually considered as like moody and mm. uh asocial because i have my huge headphones on i rarely take them off i will have full smile and nod conversations with people while listening to a podcast like i'm not there to socialize i'm there to play with my dog um actively play with her not just like take her off the leash while she sniffs around um but yeah it's a very intense subculture because it has to be um I've seen dogs on the sidewalk just like randomly eat a cigarette. <laughs> and then you see the dog owner be like, I, wh- what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. I, was it lit? No, it wasn't lit. I, but that's still like a lot of tobacco. Like they can't eat chocolate. So I'm guessing swallowing a cigarette isn't good for them. Um, so they have emergency numbers. You take them to the vet. It's, it's not like having a kid. I'm, I don't have kids and I have a dog. And even I bristle at the whole Oh, it's like having a child. No, it's a member of your family. But I'm guessing a child is different. Call it a hunch. Just because you have to buy so many more like items of clothing, for one. Sorry, that's a fire truck. Because New York! And see if you have like a tiny dog, that tiny dog would be losing their mind right now. Whereas like Blue is just sitting there chilling. Hi, Blue. Um, okay, fire truck over. So your next book, Project After Charming as a Verb, is going to be a nonfiction book. Tell us as much as you can about that. And you kind of alluded to uh, your trepidation about parts of it already. Oh, sure. Uh, I don't know if I'm not supposed to talk about it, but that's a clause I never read or uh, about. <laughs> I mean, it's announced, so it's it's it can be somewhat talked about, right? Yeah, I'll fully talk about it. I'll, uh, yes, what are they going to do? Like, no one's gonna, who was going to buy it is going to be like, mm, he told us a little too much. I'm going to pass. Um, it's a collection of nonfiction essays with Harper Perennial. Um, the title is uh, Sure, I'll Be Your Black Friend. It's not even based on me. It's just stories of my life having been um, a black person in primarily white spaces. I'm... I've always had to be sort of like comfortable with that because that's all there was for the longest time. I was born in Haiti, Port-au-Prince, um, and my parents were, I'll say, rich. Mm. I feel like if you have a, a house with three floors and a cook in Haiti, you're rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sent me to like the kindergarten where all the other kids were the kids of like foreign workers and Americans. Um, so all my, all, I had a, some black classmates too, but a lot of my classmates were white and I got the, you know, my dad was an aspiring politician, did not really work out for him. Um, and he really wanted me to make friends with those white kids. <laughs> so I was like, no, 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 that's good. Those are good connections. Cause then I can make friends with their parents. Um, so that was a layer of it. When I was six, we moved to Quebec, Canada, 
and we didn't even move to like Montreal. We moved to Sherbrooke, which was like, oh no, I was the black kid in school. Uh, and when you're super young, kind of super easy. Like before they, they internalize like uh, social constructs and biases and racism and all that stuff. Like, can I touch your hair? Okay, cool. We're best friends for two years now. So I had that level of experience too. And then, you know, kids grow up, they learn from their parents and they learn from the world and racism comes in. So I talk about that. Uh, we move closer to Montreal. I talk about sort of like socializing with um, other black people and how that was a little hard for me. Um, my teenage self was a very sort of punk rock, Vans warp Tour type of guy as opposed to a hip hop rap type of guy. So I got the Oreo label fairly oh. quickly. Also, I, I talk like this, and I got good grades in school. Um, I talk about my parents' divorce, the cultural shift from being, like, wealthy in Haiti to being, like, which monetarily, like, translates to being lower middle class to broke uh, in America. And my mom was, like, a surgical nurse in Haiti. She had to go back to high school uh, when we moved to Canada. She did not expect that. That kind of lied about life in North America. <laughs> um, so they got divorced. That was a lot of like, uh, I'm going to say background noise, not to diminish it, but it was just like a lot was happening. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about moving to New York for college, moving to my dorms. And again, it was the, it's Columbia University, a lot of wealthy white kids trying to find yourself. Um, I talk, uh, I remember sort of like going to the ATM with a, uh, floor mate of mine a friend and they left a receipt in the machine um they had thirty eight thousand dollars in their checking account and uh, now that could have been like tuition that could have been a lot of things maybe dad was like in the cayman islands moving some money around i don't know i just know that i had uh fourteen dollars in mine <laughs> uh and i did not know where the next uh influx was coming from so i talk about that and then i it's it covers the first like basically 25 years of my life. Then I talk about moving from New York to Texas for graduate school and being surrounded by writers and trying to find my voice, writing. It's very narcissistic. There's a long chapter on dating apps. Um, but hopefully it's funny. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. I promise <laughs> that the intent was for it to be funny just because I feel, well, except the last essay, which was, the thing I was working on now, which was just cobbled like a response to the fun, fun year we're having <laughs> all of the goddamn nowhere. My book was fully outlined and then America decided to just like throw a little curveball into the global pandemic. Um, so I talked a lot about like, not a lot. Um, the last essay is about Black Lives Matter and what it means. Uh, I still love all my uh, friends of all ethnicities. Um, you know, when you have friends who are like posting black squares and you also have friends that are sliding into your DM saying like, Hey, don't you think you're going too far with the statues? Hey, would you feel different about this if you were not black mm -hmm. and you just have like, I don't know, the trumpet from Curb Your Enthusiasm in the backdrop playing? <laughs> How do I process this? But I do think, uh, it changed a few things in my life, like sure. the year 2020, like, I used to really live... I told you, Brock, when I talk to you, it becomes therapy. Stop it. Um, I used to really live for, like, the approval of certain white friends in my life mm -hmm. until, like, two months ago. Uh, a month ago. Like, I, I really sort of, like, craved it. When they texted, I answered first, like, right away. 
I I had a Google Calendar with their birthdays. They did not birthdays, stuff like that. And it's not that they were racist or anything. They were just nice people. But I really craved their approval. And I it kind of like it's like somebody shattered a crystal somewhere. I just don't anymore. <laughs> and so when they were texting like, "Hey, are you okay?" thing of you, I'm just not answering. So there, so that last essay, the one I like postponed our chat to work on and tinker with was dealing with figuring out what that crystal was what exactly broke um and making it funny because again it's a funny collection of things so then the difficulty that you've had writing this nonfiction book is that because it is so personal and thus you have to kind of expose yourself uh, you can't really hide behind anything or <laughs> is it more that because it's about your real life and there are people in it that are referred to mm -hmm. or might see themselves in that you're worried about that? Or is that kind of a moot point now because, as you mentioned, uh, the crystal is broken? Mm, I thought it was the second one, but the crystal is broken. So if I get like that text I'm not answering, if I get a, a giant gray bubble from someone who was hurt by the book, I, I struggle to care. <laughs> I think I will struggle to care. Um... I think it's the first part. I think it's writing about your life. And I'm also used to writing YA books. YA books come with a very clean three-act structure, at least the way I think of mine. Um, it's harder to find that structure when you're writing about your life, right? To find an arc to stuff that happened to you, because it's just events that you try to string together. Um, something traumatic-ish doesn't have a really you know, gung-ho resolution, the resolution is in what um, bits of wisdom or analysis or jokes, because it is a funny book, you can sort of extract from that. So I think sort of like writing something that felt coherent, that felt like it moved and wasn't just a brief um, survey of stuff that just happened was a challenge that I might not have met. We will see on Goodreads in like a year. So switching gears, uh, with this pandemic, obviously, a lot has been going on. Uh, and with that, different people have been forced to kind of get into different things. So what have you sort of been really kind of steeped in or found new interest in or fell down a rabbit hole of uh, during this time? Hmm. Well, I always consumed like a borderline problematic amount of TV and movies, always. So like the pandemic didn't really change that. I, I, I see on social media, people are like, oh, we're already done with like a 10 episode series in a week. I'm like, yeah, that's normal. You should have done it in three days. You slacked. So like the media consumption hasn't really increased, especially since there are movies, uh, new releases these days. I used to like going to the movie theater a lot. Um, I think I'm just, and feel free to cut this out if it's a yikes. I'm just filled with like a weird manic energy I don't know what to do with. I started the pandemic by scoffing at all the dudes breaking bread on Instagram. Um, even like some authors, I would, I would not post it at them because I'm not a monster, but I would post about like, oh, enough with the bread baking. And they would be like, oh, well, I made like sourdough, Ben, LOL. <laughs> like, sorry, Evelyn Sky, you rock, I love you. Um, and now... I'm baking like elaborate, like red velvet cakes for no reason in the middle of the night. So karma came back on that one. I got a rowing machine 
never saw myself as a roarer, but I got one. Sometimes I look at my dog and I'm like, what if I had three of you? So it's <laughs> in this apartment with this life schedule. So I don't know. I feel like we're all spinning a little bit. Um, I will call, I think, just a little bit of uh, BS on the I'm reading a lot mode of thinking. I'm sure some people are. I'm sure for some people it's it's genuine. But I see a lot of stacks of books. I'm like, you did not read 25 books on racism in week. That just did not happen. You collected them into a beautiful bookstagram photo. And that's awesome. Thank you. But I, I, I have a hard time believing you read all these books. So I think our relationship to social media has changed. And I, I'm, I'm a big people watcher. It's one of my favorite things. Um, my headphones are on all the time except when I'm on the subway because they're just muted because I love watching people and eavesdropping on their conversations. And I think social media has shifted in a way because we no longer have contents. Uh, like content for like, here's my hike, here's my beach vacation. We don't have that, right? So it all has to happen closer to home. And I find that so fascinating, like how people are changing on social media. It's my new form of uh, people watching. I'm like, what's this person doing? And I go in and they're just like chiseled with pecs now. And it's like a 45-year-old stand-up comic I used to like, and now they're just like, yeah, I'm a workout Instagram thought. It's like, wow, that was in you all along. <laughs> all you have to do is be locked in your apartment with a face mask to unlock it. Um, some people are like more politically active, especially with the Black Lives Matter summer we're having. Um, and to be clear, I have a lot of really, really, really awesome white friends. Like That's most of my life, like statistically the accumulation from since I, I was like in Canada. Um, and at first, like the whole, it's all post a black square because reasons, uh, thing that was happening. I quirked an eyebrow at it, but some people who have been like keeping up with it, who are sharing articles who are engaged in a way that I will admit I'm not because this wasn't my big discovery of racism, uh, three weeks ago. And they're just socially engaged. And it's like, they discovered this new, layer to the world that they genuinely weren't aware of before and i'm fascinated to watch that too and i understand it's gonna dip no one can stay like politically engaged for ever see occupy wall street eventually every pseudo movement has to sort of like change forms um but i'm just fascinated to fascinated to watch it all so i guess since i don't have a six-pack and i'm not super ripped um, again, a full red velvet cake will be baked and eaten by me because there's no one else around. Um, I think people watching and being on my phone are two things that have like kept me sane or just kept me entertained at, at least. So you're from Canada. And so you must see a lot of, uh, Americans looking at Canada and saying, Oh, what a great place. It's so much better than what we're living through right now. Mm -hmm. What's sort of your reaction to any of those sentiments uh, that you come across? Oh, that is a fun little bit of fantasy. First of all, thank you for asking, because this is the part where I get to go off. Um, Canada, and you have Canadian listeners who might come for me, but I'm just going to say it, is America's little brother. And not historically, right? We have our own holiday, our own national holiday, 
three days before yours, but we have our own. Um, but in terms of media consumption, there's a lot of overlap there. The same books, TV shows, films are distributed in both. So in many ways, we're a lot alike. And we see Donald Trump on all of our phones and TV screens here 24 hours a day. You see him 22, 23 hours a day up in Canada, because what affects America affects the rest of the world. Um, so the fantasy that Amer that Canada is immune to all of this is very, very false. And I think I myself had that fantasy for a while. While I was in sort of like in America, I would go back to Canada and I would watch the news report. I'd be like, what the hell? You geographically should not have MAGA hats here. That makes no sense. Um, but we have, I've seen them in Montreal. I've seen sort of like Canadian offshoots of those same um, organization, that same rhetoric. Videos of, you know, um, Muslim Canadians getting harassed. Videos of spikes of racism. Like, it's, it's all the same continent. So there is a lot of overlap. Um, we do have, no offense, a way better healthcare system way stronger social net so i think that does end up making a difference but yeah racism and like social strife that is all up there um it's weirdly more personal for me up there because uh montreal took in a lot of haitian refugees um in the past let's say decade and after the, the earthquake and you know all of that and they get sort of like the whole build a wall, send them home sentiment that happens in America. In Canada, it's, it's targeted at like Haitian people and immigrants of that ilk. So I see a lot of it um, from both sides. Uh, I've gotten, I love my mom. She's my best friend. I love her so much. Belzy, you're not listening to this, but shout out. Um, I've gotten into arguments with her because she's like, yeah, they're going to hate us. Why are there so many of them coming here? I was like, well, we were them. We were the immigrants who did not know what they were doing. Like, not that long ago. They're here for a better life. She's like, I know, I know. I just think, I just liked it better when everybody got along. I'm like, no, everybody didn't get along. We just didn't have phones to film all of it and put it online every single time. Um, and I love her, and then we hug, and then we laugh, and then we watch TV together. Um, but, I, yeah, the, the myth of Canada being a utopia is not completely unfounded, but it is exaggerated. That's good to know. So, Charming as a Verb comes out September 8th. Then you have the nonfiction piece. So what's then on the horizon after that? Are, is there anything that you're working on? Uh, that you can talk about in any way, shape, or form that you feel comfortable mentioning uh, that we can expect from you? Sure. I'm never comfortable, Brock. We both know this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually writing for TV now. Um, this a few weeks ago, actually because of the Zoom of it all, I got staffed into the room for a new show on Hulu mm -hmm. with Steve Martin and Martin Short. Wow. It's called Only Murders in a Building. Um, so it's very wild to wake up. That's part of the reason why the edits have been going so slow on the nonfiction book. It's very wild to wake up, sit in front of my computer, and instead of zooming into class, I zoom into a virtual TV writer's room with people who've been doing television for decades now, like writers who've been on that 70s show, on Family Guy, and just to break story and write together. It's a... It's a learning curve, but that's been like a huge dream of mine for 
quite some time. And I think I couldn't quite make it happen when I lived in LA because I don't know. I like people telling me what to do. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's happening now. And I really, really enjoy it. I think teaching, and I know I'm speaking to a fellow educator, is not losing its luster, but I think I could, I, I, I don't see myself doing it for five more years, but I see myself writing books for five more years. And I see myself, if they don't fire me because all my ideas are terrible and I never know when to start talking in the Zoom little yellow box, um, I could see myself doing this for 10 years. So we'll see what the next year brings. So that's very exciting. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, so let's wind down with this. What is the last great book that you've read? What's the last great book that I read or reread? Either one. Oh, 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 that's easy. Steve Markley's Ohio, actually. Um, it's this gritty novel. He's an Iowa boy, also now a TV writer, which is how I met him. And I was like, oh, check out your book. Um, and it is phenomenal. It's this gritty sort of like Ohio set story. It's a little YA, actually, because this the, the characters turned out are, are young. It's about their sort of like their young lives and flashbacks and all that. Um, there's sex and drugs and all that stuff. But it's it it's a really engrossing read. Um, so I really loved it, which did not make like pitching ideas across from like my laptop to him uh, less intimidating after that. So screw you, Steve. <laughs> so Charming as a Verb comes out on September 8th. Congratulations on this, Ben. Very excited for it. And glad to have you back here on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Brock. Um, we definitely have to talk again after I am canceled when that nonfiction book comes out. <laughs> Uh, absolutely and that wraps up this episode always great to have Ben Philippe getting a chance to talk to him hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I had having it his newest book Charming as a Verb comes out on September 8th I suggest you check it out also if you haven't already check out his debut The Field Guide to the North American Teenager until the chance I get to have Ben on the pockets again, be sure to check out some of the other episodes with some great YA and middle grade writers. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading. <laughs>